Today we're going to be reading out of 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That should be 959, page 959 in your guys' black Bibles under your seats. I'll give you guys a quick second to flip there. All right, 1 John 2, 1 through 10 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which, we, in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name's Casey. I'm one of uh, the pastors here, and uh, if you're with us for the first time, uh, I'm glad we're on, um, we're on week three of a series in First John. Um, and so we're going to be here all semester, um, maybe a little bit. We're trying to get done with it this semester, but things uh, keep happening. Um, such as, like we read through verse uh, 10, and we we're supposed to read through verse 11, but we're actually only going to get through verse 2, um, and we'll get the rest later. Um, and so uh, that, that messes up the preaching schedule, which is not a big deal for me, but it's a big deal for other people uh, who uh, have other jobs who preach for us, like Ryan, who's preaching for us here in about a month. Sorry, Ryan. And so um, it's going to be switching up just a little bit. Um, but I think it's going to be really, really good. I mean, I think we want to really resonate um, on what John is trying to tell us to give us hope. Like he, he's talking to a young church that he loves dearly, and, and he wants to give them hope that, you know, in this life, like part of this life is hard. You know, what they were experiencing is, is things that we've experienced uh, many times, or maybe you're experiencing right, right now, where people you look up to, people you love, people who you called brothers and sisters, like walking away from the faith. Just walking away. I had some friends, um, uh, they're getting out of the Air Force, and they've been in California, and they were driving through, and on their way out to California three and a half years ago, it felt like just the other day. If I'm ever talking to you, and I say just the other day, that includes any time from high school on, all right? And so I, I felt like it was just the other day, but like they had a new kid. When they went out there, that baby girl was in mommy's tummy, and now that baby girl is like, I don't know, this big, you know? I mean, it's unbelievable. But as they were coming out, they asked me if I knew about a pastor, uh, what had happened, and I didn't. You know, I mean, the story on, on him was he was trying to go through um, Acts 29, our, our church planning network, um, and they were just in the assessment, there were just some things that worried us. They just gave red flags. It was just like, man, you need to slow down. We can't get behind this. We're worried about you on like a personal family level. And we think that the stress of, of church planting right now would, would maybe destroy you. Like we're not, we're not saying never, we're saying no now. 
and he didn't listen, and he went ahead and, and planted, and three and a half years later, it's not that long. He walks away, not just from his church, he walks away from his family, and he walks away from his faith. What do you do with that? You know, my, my concerns in the assessment process, they weren't built around his exposition of the text. They, they weren't even built around, like, could he articulate the, the gospel? I mean, and so my, my concerns were like, I don't know if that gospel is penetrating his heart. I don't know about the strength of his marriage. I don't know about, like, the fundamental things that, like, you feel on the inside. Like, I don't know about those things. What do we do with that? Like, life is hard sometimes. You know, here, um, in getting ready for this, I've been thinking a, a lot about a common experience I, I see in me. And I, I mean, I really, I see it, I see it all over. A, a common experience, how it feels in me is sometimes like um, it's a hollow feeling, and yet it gets lodged in my throat, like down low. You know, it, it's something that feels like it kind of guts you, and let, yet you feel heavier, like you don't feel lighter, you feel heavier, like the weight of everything, it's closing in. And something about it like weighs in on your eyes where it diverts your eyes from wanting to look at your loved ones eye to eye. Man, I see it, I see it in my dog. Earlier this week, um, I came home, Charlie, every once in a while, I don't talk about Charlie as much, Charlie's not as bad as he used to be, um, Charlie, he's about three-year-old, uh, short hair pointer, we got him three Christmases ago in a moment of weakness, and we basically regretted it for 2.7 years, and so, but now, he, he's alright, but I came home, and no one was in the living room, and I, I don't see anyone, it was dark, I was coming home late, and then I see something kind of move on the couch, and it was Charlie! Charlie had gotten up on the couch, and that's a no. He was snuggling with the pillows I'm not allowed to snuggle with. They're there for aesthetics only. <laughs> and so I look at him like, Charlie. And he doesn't even get up. He just kind of slouches off the couch. <laughs> and he won't look at me. I'm like, Charlie. And he's just like looking away. Like, he won't look at me. I'm like, come here. He kind of creeps over really slow, not looking at me. Like, I see it in him. Like, he knew he had done something wrong. He knew that he had given in to some strong desire on the inside that warped everything in the world about him. And then face-to-face with someone he loves. Man, I think he likes me. Face-to-face with someone he loves. He didn't want to look. Something was weighing down. You know, I, I see it in my kids. You know, Cruz went through this long thing. I think he's mostly out of it, but where like if he'd get caught, like man, he didn't want to look at you. He would cover his eyes and run, usually right into a wall. <laughs> you know, and I mean, he, he's in trouble, so we're trying to, you know, keep it together. Like, hey, wait a minute. But you can't not laugh. I mean, you're like, well, that ain't ever going to work out, you know? But something inside of him, man, it would, it would cause him a, a shame, a feeling of, man, I don't measure up. Why did I give in? I see it in me. I see it when I've snapped at my kids or I've been unkind to my wife. I feel it when I'm going in to apologize and to repent and just say, I'm sorry. I feel it in me. And it always seems to want to divert the eyes down. Like I feel trapped. Have you ever felt trapped? 
Have you ever felt like there's a battle inside of you in the moment afterwards when you're trying to face loved ones and, and confess? Like there's a moment, of, I can't even fully explain the battle. And you might try to come up with all kinds of reasons for why it was reasonable or how you might've been failed. And so it's the most reasonable thing anybody would do, but you know it's not. This is what, this is what John is writing about. John is writing about this thing that we still wrestle with as believers of sin, shame, love, and obedience. It's all mixed in like this battle that's constantly going around. Like, how are they able to coexist in my life? You know, as we start to like kind of walk toward the text, the question is going to be like, where do I see these battles the strongest? Why do I hate the tension so much? If you're not a believer and you don't ascribe to what we're going to talk a lot about, sin, I would just ask you, why do you hate that tension so much? Why do you have such elaborate arguments for why it's okay? Why do your eyes get diverted also? You know, John when he's writing to this church whom he loves, he's writing to help them battle against sin, and he wants to give them a historical assurance. We messed with that two weeks ago, a historical assurance. I walked with Jesus. I saw Jesus. He was risen from the dead. I was there. And so I'm proclaiming what I saw and what I know. It's not like a system of beliefs or thoughts. It's something that happened. The gospel is something that happened. But now he's going to come to a doctrinal stance and he's going to say in the boldest thing, if you understand these two things, it's not just that, that you can have an understanding of how to work with sin and shame. He's going to present it in such a way. If you really understand these two doctrinal stance of where Jesus is and what he has done, that it is going to free you in a way that you can now battle sin and you can find victory in what he's going to talk about next week. It's going to be this week, but it didn't work out. In obedience. And so this is... What we're going to look at it, we're going to look at it with two questions. It was three questions, but that was a cross out two questions. And just real simple, you know, what's the problem? And the answer is going to be sin. And we're just going to unpack that. And then we're going to look at what's the solution. And the answer, you're going to see two words there. It's advocate and propitiation. The solution is Jesus as my advocate and Jesus as my propitiation. And then the, the third point that we'll cover next week is, is about obedience. But, you know, we, we can't do that. I, I have a preaching problem. Hi, my name is Casey, and I'm a preaching holic. Oh, holic. Let's pray. Um, Father, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would just help us Lord, that we would feel this as John in his old age of all that he's seen, of being with Jesus in all the small rooms, of being with Jesus and resting upon his shoulder, of hearing all the backstory, of being able to ask questions and being at the foot of the cross of his execution, seeing him die, being entrusted with his mom to care for and seeing him rise again. Lord, now as an apostle and a church elder talking to a young church just like us, with all the wisdom of life and all that he saw. Lord, I pray that his message of how do we deal with sin that persists in the life of a believer, Lord, I pray that it would take root. I pray that we'd identify our sin. I pray that we'd understand it more deeply. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just confess it, but we would put it to death. Um, Father, Lord, we need help. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, so let's get started. Um, <clears throat> it's going to be kind of like a classroom setting, if you will. So look at verse 1. And so it starts off and it says, my, my, my little children. And so by this time, it, John is probably near 80 or older. Like uh, some commentaries can talk about him being like 85 to 90 of when this was written. And church history points that he lived into his old age. And so, I mean, even in just looking at that, like the way that a a grandfather would speak to his kids, like what's supposed to happen as you get older is you're supposed to like really stand firm on the things, the lines that you need to stand on and be way more open handed about other things. Like what's supposed to happen as you get older is you don't get freaked out by, you know, the dishwasher breaking because you've experienced that over and over and you didn't have YouTube to tell you how to fix it, you know? And so you had to just act like you knew what you were doing to get under to fix it when your wife knew you didn't know what you were doing. I mean, you had to do that. It's supposed to build a stability. And so when he's writing and he says, my little children, he's not being patronizing. He's being loving. You know, when we talk about Free City, like God's really blessed us in a lot of ways, and he's blessed us um, to reach young people. But, man, we've always prayed, God, we want to be multi-generational. Like, we need marriages that can be observed. We need families that you can observe them raising their kids, that you can ask them questions. Like, we want to be multi-generational across the spectrum to reflect what Lawrence has. And so, like, this would be a moment, like... In the same way that, you know, that the church in, in and around Ephesus would be thinking about, you know, John as he's writing, he says, my little children, and they would feel warm. And they'd look at him as an elder, as someone that, hey, we can look to your life and we're going to find things that we shouldn't do, but we're going to find things of what repentance looks like and what it looks like to finish well. I mean, not that you're going to die any minute, but what it looks like to finish well. Like this would be a moment, like if you're one of our young people, like look around, find an old person, kind of smile and nod at them. You know, say thanks. Thanks for having a job. You know, we appreciate that. And if you're looking at someone in their 30s, shame on you. They're not old. Something wrong with you. But John, he loves this church. He loves it. He writes, my little children. And then look at the goal of what he writes. I write these things to you that you may not sin. And so, I mean, we could actually understand that in this way. Like if I need to battle against sin, like when he says, I write these things down, he's talking about what we now have in the scripture. He's talking about his letter, but the scriptures can teach us to not sin. The scriptures can teach us to have moderation in our life. The scriptures can give us temperance. The scriptures can flow in and out of our life. The scriptures can remind us of what is really true in a moment where delusion is all around. He says, I write these things to you that you may not sin. That's the problem. So if we just, the question, what's the problem? He's talking about some sort of powerful hold of sin. And, and I, I know, and actually, I, I actually even hope. I, I know and, and I hope that there are actually people here that when I, when I talk about sin, like there's almost this, this moment of like, I cannot believe you like made it past the eighth grade and you still believe in the idea of sin. 
that you still believe is something so base that holds humanity down. Like, like, like you're thinking right now, like, isn't that like negative? Like, shouldn't we think about, you know, the problems of humanity as achievable problems? Like, that through education and, and through like understanding, like we're going to be able to come to terms with them and fix them. Like, shouldn't we think about strengths and weaknesses? And the Bible doesn't say so. The Bible talks about an indwelling power of sin upon your life. The Bible talks about this indwelling power of sin that exists in all education levels. It exists in like all economic standings. It exists in both political parties and in all cultures. And it exists and it permeates. And it's a problem on the inside. It's not just things we do. It's a problem in our motivations and how we want to warp everything around us to fit us. The Bible presents a problem that is not fixable by our hands. You know, the the backdrop of this text is a church who had been deeply wounded by leaders and brothers and sisters who walked away from the faith. and, And those leaders had suddenly kind of been enlightened. And they started to deny the need for a, a person, a person like Jesus. They started to deny the need of Jesus as Savior who died a death. They started to deny that need. And they said, isn't this just about us kind of knowing and arriving? And then that led to other problems. It started to lead to these problems of like, hey, if that's true, if it's just about like knowing, like I'm enlightened, then does it really matter how I live? And sin was taking hold and taking grip not just of the people who left, but also of the church. See, they they walked away because they wanted a system that didn't condemn sin. They wanted a system that didn't make their fundamental problem something beyond their control or something that made them culpable, something that made them accountable for it. They wanted a system that just enlightened and we carried with. They didn't want a system that made this condemnation that you are so bad that only the death of God could fix you, but you are so loved that he was willing to do it. They didn't want a system that was beyond their control. And us too. Like, if that doesn't describe us, I, I don't know what it is. And so, like, let me just, let's back up a couple verses. And so look, look in chapter 1, look at verse 8. And so we know that there were some questions that this church wrote, you know, to, to John, because he always starts off with phrases like this, if we say... And, and so he's answering their questions, or maybe some leaders are like, man, we're having these trouble. And so now he wants to instruct these problems. And so like, he's answering a question like this, like, we don't want to believe in the powerful hold of indwelling sin upon our life. We much rather believe in anatomical, psychological, or socio- like societal problems. Like, we don't want to believe something that plagues me. We want to believe that these are like, oh, my body is just broken. Or, or gosh, you know, my, I'm unadjusted. Or it's a society thing. Like, we just have to fix what's out there. And Paul is saying, no, we can't do that. And so look at 1 John 1, verse 8. It'll be up on the screen for you. But it says this. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Like, this, this is a denial of sin nature. Like, living in us. Like, the sin is singular. Like, here it's a singular word. And so it's talking about this all-encompassing power inside of our lives, that self-centeredness that's abounding in all my motives, thoughts, and ideals. 
And so John is asserting something that we need to hear. Like we like to think of like my problems and society problems in terms of anatomical issues or in terms of like psychological things, impairments, or in terms of like sociological constructions. I think the question would be, does that really give you answers for everything you see? Like, it can't just simply be economics. And there is the sin of economics. Do not hear me say that. Or not say that. Whichever one works. Put the knot or take the knot out. Don't hear me not say that. That's it. And so there is, like, a, a sin of economics. But poor people steal. And they might do it with a gun or a knife in a store. But, man, rich people steal with hedge funds and a click of a keyboard. It persists. I mean, it can't just be like a sociological problem if it exists in individualistic cultures like ours and collective cultures that stress state and family above all. It can't just be societal. It can't just be an educational problem if it exists on all levels of education. Like, I mean, I, I, I went to public school. I went to public grade school, Roosevelt Elementary. We were Rough Riders. I went to public middle school. I was a middle school, East Junior High kitten. I mean, fierce. I went to public high school. I was a wildcat, a little bit better than a kitten. I went to public college, a little bit of scholarship, not a lot. I went there all five years, uh, I, you know, bonus round. And so, I mean, I went. I saw on all levels of education, sin. I saw people hurting other people for their own gain. I saw people denying responsibility when they did it. I saw all forms of sin. I went to a private graduate school. A seminary is different. I saw sin there too. Different kind of sin. It's there. All places. Like claiming to not have an inherent sin problem persisting inside of me. It is so tempting, but it doesn't account for what I see in me and for what I see around me. John speaks to our culture when he says, listen, there is a strong desire to want to deny like a powerful hold of indwelling sin. And it's much easier to believe in anatomical issues, psychological issues, or societal structures. And he's like, they contain sin also, but the problem is a force. Or, or jump ahead two verses to 1 John 1.10. Like he talks about it a different way where he just says this. He says, if we say, and so this is another, so he's trying to say something different. And so he's answering this question. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so like on some of this, like this is more denial of fault. Like it, it, it's, a, it's a past tense. Like it, you see that it says sin, but specifically it's a past perfect tense, which means it has a continued effect. And so if we say, no, 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 man, I'm not guilty and I'm still not guilty. It wasn't my fault, which actually I think this is more about our culture. This is what we see. We say, yeah, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm not accountable for it because it happened like this, because this happened to me or because that happened or because I was born like this or whatever. We say we're not at fault. And he says, if you claim that you have no culpability, no accountability, that it's beyond your control to like control yourself, and you just flat out don't even try to fight. If you say, it's not my fault, if you don't want to believe in a powerful hold of indwelling sin, but much rather hold on to some sort of situational ethic, it's not my fault, it's not wrong. He says, you're calling God a liar. 
you look at the God of the Bible and you say, you're a liar. It's not my fault. And so this is the backdrop that he's coming in, and he wants to give us hope. He wants to give us hope. Like, this is showing sin to be deeper than wrong actions. This is showing it, like, persisting in everything about me. Like, persisting even when I try to do good things. Like, it's showing this powerful grip on the inside of my life that I'm aware of the struggle because when I, when I fall, it feels like what I describe, a hollowness that weighs me down and it gets lodged in my throat and I don't want to look at the people I've wronged in the eye. And, you know, there's other places where it describes it. You know, if you have your Bibles, keep your finger here. You go back to Romans 7 and Paul describes it so well. And he describes it, he calls it this law of sin, which we should kind of think about like power, something that wants to be obeyed. And so he says, so I find that to be a law that when I do, uh, whoa, whoa. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And so he says, listen, there's been a change that's happened to me. I do delight in God's law and it's inside of me. But then it goes, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Like when it talks about law, you want to think authority that wants to be obeyed. You want to think about some sort of power. And so he says, within me, there is the power of God working in me. I'm a believer. I've been born again. And now I stand as a son or daughter of God with all the rights of a son or daughter who can approach the father. But yet there's a battle inside of me. There's another power working in me. The Bible is going to call that power the flesh. And so like, this is such good news because you thought it was just you and it's not just you, it's me too. And it's not just you and me because that would still be a sad party. It's also Paul. And so he says, there's this battle. And then look at this, what does he do? Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver rescue? Who will deliver, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then it says, Jesus will. Thanks be to God through whom Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so it brings him to the point of the gospel. Who's going to rescue me from this? Jesus is going to rescue. This is exactly what John is trying to talk about. He says, there is a problem, a powerful hold of indwelling sin that wants to deny that there's a problem, wants to deny that you need help, wants you to believe that you can fix it on your own, that you don't have to do, we just did verse 8 and verse 10, you don't have to do what verse 9 says, bring it to the light. Confess your sins once and know that you might be saved. You don't want to bring it to the light. And so he talks about this deep power. Like, do you see that as a problem that you need to be rescued from? Or are you telling yourself that you have it under control? Or it's not your fault because of circumstances. See, Paul wasn't just writing to the church at Ephesus, battling this thing called Gnosticism. He's writing to us in our culture. And so the first, he tells about this problem, is indwelling sin. Next, what's the solution? Jesus, our advocate, and Jesus, our propitiation. Like, those are fun words. 
Like you, you don't use that propitiation word very often. And it's kind of hard because the Bible doesn't use it very often either. So we got to wrestle. But those are fun words. Like those are fun, like cattywampus or shenanigans or discombobulated. Those are fun words. All three of those words I hear in Sports Center. I don't know how they use them, but all of those words are there. And so like these words we need to unpack. And so the first, the solution to sin is Jesus, the righteous, our advocate. Like look at verse one. It says, but if anyone does sin, like that is such good news. Like he says, I'm writing this that you may not sin. And then you're like, oh man, that does not describe me very well. And then it says, but if any of us do sin and you're like, okay, maybe it can't talk about me also. But if any of us does sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Like, you guys need to smile. Look at me and smile. This is such good news. Like, Paul gets here and he, I'm sorry, John gets here and he just like jumps off and he says, you have someone in your corner that understands what this world is like, that understands what it's like to be tempted, what it's like to be hurt and get, you know, be stabbed in the back, what it's like to be denied, and he is your advocate. He is your advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one who advocates on our behalf. The word advocate it comes from the, the word paraclete, which is often, John also uses it to describe the Holy Spirit. But when it describes the Holy Spirit, it always gets translated as helper. You know, the Holy Spirit advocates for us to Jesus in the way that he helps us understand Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes alongside to illuminate Jesus in life and to illuminate Jesus in the gospel and the scriptures. And so the Holy Spirit comes and in that way helps or advocates. But when it's applied to Jesus, it gets translated in some places where it says who speaks for you. But the the clear translation would be who advocates for you. See, Jesus, it comes in a formal, like, saying a formal title because it's the picture of the courtroom where Jesus stands beside God the Father arguing your case for you. Like this is like every, you know, movie, like courtroom movie that you've seen that, that you just get drawn into because, you know, it's an uphill battle and, you know, the, the defense attorney is trying to get you off and he's, he's trying to help. And, you know, he yells out like, I want the truth and you, you can't handle the truth. That's a movie. And so like, it's the moment where you're capped in, where you're like, I hope his case for me is good. I hope he has evidence. I hope he's winsome. I hope that, you know, that he captivates the heart of the jury or captivates the heart of the judge. I hope he makes the judge feel what I'm feeling. I hope he brings him in. I hope he proves my innocence. I hope he does his job well, because if he's my advocate, depending on how he does means how I do. If he doesn't win, I don't win. If he wins, I win. Like when we use the word advocate, it's trying to bring us into this formal setting. But this is so important. Jesus doesn't advocate for yourself from a position of mercy. Like look at the title. It doesn't say your advocate, Jesus the merciful. Like that's usually how I picture this moment. Like I usually picture this moment of Jesus like sitting next to God the Father and it's this moment where it's like, oh man, God, Casey blew it again. 
And then there's this dialogue of like, where God the Father's like, yeah, I knew he would. I mean, that's kind of what he does. And Jesus is like, yeah, but man, remember, like, just be merciful. Help him out. Let's give him one more chance. And the problem with that picture is how long can Jesus ask for one more chance from a position of mercy until God the Father's like, we're done. He had his chance. No more. But he doesn't say that. It doesn't say Jesus the merciful. It says Jesus the righteous. That means Jesus advocates for all believers from a position of justice, from a position of righteousness. That's what he appeals to. Jesus, our advocate, he's advocating on the basis of what he has already observed in the divine laws on our behalf. Like the picture of justice is what he's pulling from. And so when he stands on my behalf and he's like, Father, look at Casey. He doesn't say, look, oh man, he messed up. Let's give him one more chance. He says, look at what you've already been paid for. I was, we get the next word, propitiation. I paid for his sin. It would be wrong for you to receive two payments for the same penalty that I've already paid for. So give him what he deserves. Treat him as a son. Let him back in. Jesus, the righteous, your advocate. John tells us, my little children, when you do sin, Jesus, the righteous, advocates for you on the basis of him completing all the divine laws that God established. And he can do this because of what he is in verse 2. In verse 2, it says, the solution to my sin is Jesus our propitiation. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, it says, He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. And we don't use propitiation very, very often, and actually neither does the Bible. And so some people struggle with this, and they translate it okay, where they talk about like the atoning sacrifice, but they struggle with it. Our culture especially struggles with it because of the idea of God being wrathful. But if you want to use the Bible, there is no way to understand God's position against sin other than to use words like justice, wrath, and then thank me to Jesus' love. Like first, justice. Like the justice of God, it, it, it can't be bent. Like God is a judge and no good judge could ever just ignore wrongdoing. You know, no good judge could ever just be like, gosh, I think they're really sorry and they're sad about it. Like judge, a justice is supposed to be blind. It's supposed to take in only the evidence. That's why Lady Justice is blindfolded and all she can hold is to the weight of the evidence. And so that's why we would be an outcry if someone we were watching, like someone you know, did something horrible to me and I go into the courtroom and then I see that the judge is his mom. Like in that moment, I'd be like, they couldn't be impartial. That they couldn't just hear the evidence. They would hear about the person. And so we would be outraged for that because justice can't be bent for society to move forward. It has to be blind. God is absolutely just and it can't be bent. The next word we have to understand is wrath. Like the wrath of God is real. 
Like to, to say it mildly, the, the doctrine of the wrath of God, it's, it's kind of fallen on hard times. Like, like any concept of, of God's wrath upsets our modern sentiment. It's too disconsenting, too, too con- disconcerting, and it's too intolerant. But the wrath of God is expressed in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. It doesn't go away. Jeremiah 30, 23, just to give you an idea, it says, Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. It exists in things like Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by their unrighteousness who suppress the truth. Like the idea of God being angry about sin is not just like an Old Testament thing that we can be like, oh, well, that was then, but now this is now. Like it has to be dealt with and God just can't bend the rules on justice and say like, well, is it really that big of a deal? Like he can't just sweep it under a cosmic rug because there is no cosmic rug. Because God is just and because sin is an affront against him that is far more personal than we ever think about. Like when we disagree with him, we call him a liar according to 1 John 1.10. And we disagree with him all the time. When, when we hurt others, we're attacking his image and it affects him according to Acts 9 verses 1 through 9. When we see his ways and we ignore them, we suppress his glory to establish our own glory. And that's an offense to him, according to Romans 1, 18 through 20. When we see the pleasures that he loves, that he created, that he has provided, but we refuse to honor them in their place, and we rob him and we make his glory of what he's created as cheap and dispensable, it angers him, according to Romans 1, 24 through 25. They're personal attacks upon his character. And for him to be holy, he has to have a feeling about it. And the Bible tells us what that feeling is because it wants us to know that that feeling is wrath. And in the moment that we hear that and we want to judge that, I mean, I know right now there's people like, ah, that's not how I understand the Lord. That's not how I understand the Bible. You need to read it. And you also need to look within. Because you have wrath too. You see, when, when, when someone like spoke lies about you or betrayed your trust, and you felt something rise up that said, that's not right, and you wanted to even the score, you felt wrath. When you hear or you saw or you experienced or someone you love experienced and and they were raped or abused and you wanted justice, that's wrath. When you see large corporations trample small corporations and you think that's not right, that's wrath. Wrath is what comes of the defendant of a love, the defending of something good. And God has wrath. But God also has love. The love of God is lavish. These words, we have to understand, you know, that justice is within God. God is just. That wrath is within God because of his justice. There has to be wrath to defend that which is good and that which is beautiful. But there's also love because God is just. He's angry over sin. 
because he's just, he can't just ignore sin. He can't just be indifferent. But because of his lavish love, we have the gospel. We have a way that all of these things can come together and they can all be satisfied. And it's called Jesus, our propitiation. See, propitiation means to appease wrath. You know, a lot of people wrestle, and this is scholars too, they wrestle with that idea because when they hear propitiation, that word was used a lot to describe like, like pagan deities that were capricious, that wanted to get you, but we had to like give them bribes to make them happy. And they said, oh man, that's just kind of creeping in and we don't want to give that idea. But this is nothing like that. This is acknowledging that because of the justice of God, there is wrath for sin that has to be dealt with. It can't just be like blown off or, or swept under the rug. It has to be dealt with. And so something had to appease the wrath of God. And this is the good news of the gospel that Jesus was glad to be the propitiation for sin, to take the wrath of God upon himself. Jesus paid the price when he died on the cross to satisfy the penalty of the law that condemned us. At the cross, God's wrath, love, and justice met together and were all satisfied. Because of God's love, he sent his son, Jesus, into the world to die upon the cross for the world's sin. You know, when it says um, at the end of verse 2, the sins of the whole world, it doesn't mean that everyone's just forgiven. But it means this. There is no sin in the world that Jesus is not enough to forgive. It's enough for everything. And so we're told how to receive that forgiveness. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, the strength of his case of propitiation is when you've messed up and you want to avert your eyes and you don't want to look up to heaven and you feel like you can't pray and you don't want to go to church because you don't want to hear things because you messed up again and it's not like an isolated account. It's an again account. You're afraid to look up to heaven because you might see a certain kind of look. You're afraid to go home because your parents might look at you a certain kind of way with judgment stares and like, I knew you would do it again. But this means that in propitiation, Jesus, our propitiation, is he took that look from you so that when you come to God, the Father, the judge of the world, you don't find a judge, but you find a father. You know, I started talking about what sin does to us. It makes us look away. It makes us not want to make eye contact. It produces shame that causes us to fear the eye of others and the eyes of God. Like, listen to this quote describing shame from a book called The Wounded Heart by Dr. Dan Allender. And it's specifically dealing with um, shame that, that happens in, in sexual abuse um, and victims, but it's so pliable to so many things. And so he says this, he says, Shame is a dreaded, deep-seated, long-held terror come true. What we have feared has actually come about. We've been found out. The dark secret, and there are many in every life. 
that may involve a past sexual indiscretion, thought or behavior, a past disloyalty, a failure of conscience, a violent act, a cruel outburst, or a personal failure is now known. All our elaborate defenses, disguises, and personality traits are held in bondage in the goal of not being known because to be known is to be caught naked and defenseless. More than anything in the world, the shamed person wants to be invisible or small so that the focus will be removed, that the hemorrhage of the soul stopped. How can the shamed person accomplish this? Somehow the eyes of the one who's seen him must be deflected or destroyed. The shaming eyes of God are deflected now because of the propitiation of Jesus Christ. At the cross, all our sins were laid upon him. At the cross, it wasn't that he just paid for him. It was that he became all of your sins. So the father looked upon him and he saw the filth and the disgust of what plagued us. He saw selfishness upon the son of man. He saw pornography upon the son of man. He saw murder and rape. He saw embezzlement and theft. He saw every word that we could put there that describes someone else or that describe you laid upon the Son of Man so that we wouldn't have to see those eyes. We could see loving eyes. And the way that we step into that is if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now we remember that every week in the way that we walk to communion. There's always a danger that, you know, when we, we know we messed up in the week, we kind of want to walk, you know, sheepishly, eyes down. But like if it's a table, it's a family affair where we sit at the same level and we look across the table and we just unpack the stories of our life. Jesus purchased you a place at that table. So now you can sit at the table of God and he says, what is troubling you, my son or my daughter? Do you know the table of God? Let me pray for us. Father, um, I pray that these things would take hold. I pray that as we come to the table, like we would have a really strong sense that, Lord, we didn't earn our way. Like, it's not our actions that got us here. Lord, we'd have a strong sense of still the indwelling power of sin in our life, but we'd also have a strong sense of the advocacy of Jesus for us. We'd have a strange confidence that he was enough. Lord, that you would give us a confidence that we can come back into the house of God with loving eyes. The way we take communion here is we, um, we start on the bread side and we tear a piece of bread away and we dip it either into the wine or the grape juice. The wine is in the stoneware, the grape juice is in the glassware. And we remember, it reminds us of this great truth that we are let in because of what Jesus did. And the words that are used to describe what Jesus did and what he's doing is propitiation. He took the wrath of God away. And now he advocates for you. Now, with your heads down, eyes closed, I, just, I want to talk to you just for a second. Because in thinking about the courtroom, like, we are very familiar. Like, that courtroom in heaven, in the throne room of God, might feel really, really distant. But we feel another courtroom all the time. 
And in that courtroom, like there's some elements that we need to know. Like in that courtroom, I'm there and I stand accused and there's another voice accusing me of what I've done or what I do or what I know I'll do again. See, the advocacy of Jesus is that he comes alongside and there's a different voice. You hear that voice all the time and you need to listen to a different voice that John says, I write this to you that you may not sin, that so much of that is found right here what we discovered is propitiation. He advocates. What does Jesus say about you? Father, Lord, as we come, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't, um, um, Lord, we wouldn't have a sense that we earned it. We ha- wouldn't have a sense that we're banished from it. We would have a confident sense that Jesus has secured it. You know, there's three different motions. And so one motion is if you're a believer and you're trusting Christ, we invite you to the table. Uh, We invite you to come up. We have two stations in the front of the room. Come down kind of the right side of the aisle. And then when you turn around, return on the right side of the aisle just to help flow. We also have a station in the back uh, with the doors open. Just head back there if you're toward the back of the room. Come up front if you're toward the front of the room. But if you're unsure about who Jesus is and you're kind of kicking the tires, we're going to have some verses up on the screen to kind of just help you think through it. And we invite you to think about who is Jesus. If you... uh, you know, in talking about this indwelling power of sin, if you're just like, man, I just need prayer. I just need someone to pray for me. If there's someone close to you that you know them to be a believer and you trust them to pray for you, I, I encourage you to have them pray for you right there. I also encourage you to go to the back of the room and it will be chaotic, but there'll be some people with lanyards. They are there to pray for you. They'll move you just down the hall just a little bit. Hear as much as you want to say or as much as you don't want to say and just tell them how to pray for you. Lots of different movement. Come when you're ready.